On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with a recovering love addict named Eunice about her addiction, fantasies, toxic shame, codependency, narcissists, and unhealthy relationships. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have Eunice. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. That's Eunice with an E, correct? That's correct. Yes. Um, sorry, I made myself laugh there. <laughs> sorry. Um, so today we are going to talk about love addiction, your recovery, what love addiction is. Uh, we're not going to really be talking things from a clinical clinical perspective like we've had on uh, someone before. We had on Jody White before. We are going to talk from your perspective and you're going to let it all hang out. We're going to see a lot of stuff. We're going to bring up toxic relationships and we're going to bring up narcissists in this episode as well. We'll talk about one of your relationships, but we're going to do it from your perspective. There might be a little bit of clinical stuff in there that you'll be uh, rattling off, but for everyone, you're going to learn about what you might be going through as well, um, and you were never able to put a finger on it, and I think that uh, Eunice is going to help you out a lot today by telling her story and her struggle uh, with love addiction and toxic shame and more. So a big thank you to Eunice, and without further ado, Eunice, the floor is now yours. Thank you, Brandon. Um so I kind of want to tell my story in four parts. Um, I want to talk about a little bit why I want to talk about it. Um, and then I want to talk about what it is. And then I want to talk about um, why I feel what you do is really important and how it's been important for me. And then I'll just give everyone a brief overview of my background I guess with how I got here and and sort of my rock bottom point um so I am here to talk about um love addiction it is a newer concept for me I'm not new to therapy and recovery um I'm 32 years old and when I was about 25 I started going to therapy for an eating disorder um, that I had been struggling with since I was a little kid and, um, kind of hit my own rock bottom with that, where I felt really out of control with my eating habits. Um, and my therapist at the time used like a cognitive behavioral approach on me that worked really well on me. Um, and so within like three months, I had kind of started undoing um, the many, many, many years of damage that I had done to myself with my eating disorder. And um, every year I feel that I continue to recover more and more. 
Um, and so my love addiction kind of came up like through that as I became more separated from my eating issues. Um, I had taken a break from therapy for a couple of years and um, started to um, still feel like I was uh, not satisfied, um, not in control of relationships. I felt like tired and drained and not really sure why. Um, so I went back to the same therapist and she called me out for, um, kind of feeling that she felt like I wanted a romantic relationship. And at the time I was maybe like 28. Um, I'd never been in a serious romantic monogamous, healthy relationship. And it was kind of news to me when she said that, but kind of groundbreaking. Cause I was like, Oh, maybe I do. And so I was dating like very, um, emotionally unavailable men who were very narcissistic in my opinion. And I knew that going in, but I was kind of telling myself like a, a lie that I was okay with that. And that I didn't want something with more substance. I think as like a protection mechanism. So um, her bringing that to light um, made me realize that I had to kind of level up in those relationships. And that's sort of how I've gotten here because I haven't really been able to. And so she started treating me for codependency and love addiction is a symptom of codependency like every love addict is codependent, but I guess not every codependent is a love addict. So um, that's kind of what she and I were doing. And I did have a lot of success. I struggled with codependency in most of my relationships, my business relationships, my friendships, my family. Um, but it really stuck out more in my romantic relationships and I think that like most people in my life would be able to agree with that I always was sort of uh putting my the other person before me putting them on a pedestal and uh you know it I would end up getting hurt and getting myself into a painful cycle for years sometimes with somebody in like an on and off situation that I never intended to get in. And yeah, always just trying to like be a fixer of somebody else, which is like, I've learned kind of as useless as like trying to drive a different car on the road next to you. Um, so can so, I ask, can I ask a question? Sure. So, if we back up the truck here, because I don't know if you're going to yeah. get into any family stuff. Um, mm -hmm. So where did your codependency originate from? Um, I believe it originated from my parenting. Um, I, my uh, parents, I grew up in a very um, religious, cultural uh, family. And I feel my dad married my mom out of obligation to marry someone in our culture and in our uh, religion and that my mom did the same, but my mom is also gay, 
which was just not okay in the culture. They are both pretty emotionally unavailable, dysfunctional people who um, unintentionally passed on their issues to their kids and did their very best. And I love them very much. But in this recovery, I'm learning to really accept them uh, for the people that they are instead of who I wish they were. And uh, yeah, I I found in my upbringing, like there was a lot of inconsistency with like their level of strictness. So sometimes like they wouldn't care where I was, what I was doing. Um, You know, like I was expected to kind of teach myself how to grow up as an adult. Um, And then on the other hand, there would be times where like I would get slapped for saying a bad word. So I feel like I grew up in constantly like watching and and not really sure what I was going to get from on a day to day basis from them and not really. So you had like mm-hmm. a, uh, a neglect on their part, which was somewhat of a form of abandonment. Yet at the same time, you were punished for things and you're getting a mixed message or just another message of I have to do things this way to gain uh, attention or love. That's right. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, love addiction is all about uh, abandonment and and trying to uh, assess your value um, to, to do what you just mentioned, basically which I've been doing my whole life unintentionally until now. And it's codependency is about, you know, seeking an external source for that validation instead of from within, which is, um, creates a dysfunctional behavior pattern. The thing I want to talk about, about, uh, what love addiction, how I define it to be, Um, I think a better word for it is fantasy addiction. So um, it's something I've been doing my whole life without knowing that it was detrimental in any way. Um, I will make up little, uh, I'll use it in context of romantic relationships, but I've done it in a lot of different ways, but this is the strongest fantasy for sure. Um, But I will make up, uh, what a relationship is in my head and it's what I want it to be, but it's seldom what's happening in reality. And uh, fantasy addiction creates a high that you don't really know you're having until you're sober from it and then you experience it again. Um, so I've been kind of perpetually in a state, in a, in, in a cycle of having these highs on relationships basically going on in my mind and a little bit in reality, enough in reality to stimulate the fantasy. The purpose of, or what we do in love addiction therapy from my therapist approach is um, learning to get sober from that uh, state. And when you do get sober from that state, it's quite, I think that anybody with this problem 
has experienced that they call it withdrawal and that's what happens when you know you break up maybe the first time and you feel like you're gonna die basically after a breakup with somebody even if you intellectually know that that person wasn't a good fit for you and the withdrawal is so intense that it creates the addict to go back into the relationship even though they know that the relationship is dysfunctional um, because the withdrawal is basically just too hard to stand. In love addiction recovery, you have to be committed to withstand that feeling of withdrawal um, for a period of time until you can learn to uh, moderate yourself and regulate your feelings and emotions and relationships, basically. And I, I don't want to... Um, like, I really don't want to minimize any abuse that happens by saying that this was anybody's fault with the partners we choose. Like, they are abusive, and we were abused by them. Um, this is just how I've chosen to take responsibility for my parts in those relationships and to hopefully not repeat history is all. So... There's a there's a book I read. She's one of the pioneers of this concept. Her name is Pia Melody. Um, and she wrote a book about love addiction. And she says that a, a love addict's conscious fear is abandonment, like lots of love addicts understand and, um, and are self-aware of their fear of abandonment when going into relationships. And the unconscious fear that they have is their uh, fear of intimacy. And... Um, Love addicts typically choose uh, love avoidant types of people and their conscious, a love avoidance conscious fear, uh, according to Pia Melody, is um, the opposite. So their conscious fear is intimacy and their un unconscious fear is abandonment. So it's a perfect yin-yang. Um, and that's where narcissism comes in because all narcissists are avoidant on that spectrum not all um, avoidance are narcissists, but they usually uh, display narcissistic traits. And so, like an example of a love addict and a love avoidant getting into a relationship, um, love avoidance, they typically put up a lot of emotional walls. Um, their, their main issues stem from uh, enmeshment, and so typically they had to take an adult role in their childhood and uh, look after a caregiver, for example. So they get that suffocation aspect to them um, and they hide behind uh, walls of true intimacy. So uh, like a love bombing stage for a narcissist would trigger... Um, the abandonment and the love addict because you don't think you're going to be abandoned by this person. Um, but it's very easy for uh, an avoidant person to display um, that much intimacy at the beginning because it's not real intimacy. It's a wall of seduction, basically, to guide, to shield them from true intimacy. And so those two people kind of come together in that phase based on those two issues and they create a relationship with a lot of intensity instead of intimacy um that's kind of something that all love addicts and avoidance 
go for is that intensity, that heavy chemistry, and that high of the fantasy. Um, love avoidance, they usually want to control somebody um, so that they can stay in control of the relationship. And love addicts tend to abandon themselves as they were abandoned by their caregivers. So, um, and the, the thing is, is that both are emotionally unavailable, even though it always kind of seems like it's the avoidant who's the emotionally unavailable one. Um, but love addicts evade true intimacy as well because they're, you know, busy in their addiction and trying to get that fantasy high from somebody. Um, in my experience working with love addicts or hearing their stories, it's typically like the love addict is being abused by the love avoidant and the love addict is abusing themselves. Um, but I have heard it uh, the other way around too. I, I don't know like why I haven't met maybe just because those love addicts aren't in recovery. <laughs> maybe it's just the ones that have been abused that are in recovery. Um, and yeah, like people, uh, this whole concept also, it goes hand in hand with uh, attachment theory. So a therapist that specializes in love addiction typically specializes in codependence and attachment therapy. And, and I'm giving you the black and white uh, versions of them, but everyone, everyone is kind of on the spectrum. Like I, for example, I actually kind of default avoidant. Um, and that was shown in my uh, years from like eight to 25 with my eating disorder, um, love avoidance, um, typically, sorry, I'm ranting a bit, but love avoidance typically seek intensity outside of their relationships with other addictions, like substance addiction, sex addiction, um, or yeah, eating disorders. Um, and love addicts, uh, seek the intensity within the relationship. So I always, um, kind of, was busy with outside addictions and not relationships. But the difference is that I do also have the abandoning component and um, that has caused me to be like overly empathetic. And um, so I'm very aware or hopefully um, quite aware of what my behavior does to other people. And so I would never um, use a lot of the tactics that avoidance use because I wouldn't be able to live with um, abusing another person in a relationship. So I would just kind of turn those avoidant traits more inward um, with having like an eating disorder, for example. So what I guess, um, you know, you were going through this process and you knew kind of how you were... Um, I guess, your behavior patterns. And were you still able to stop it? And, and yeah. how has the struggle been in, in current relationships? Or am I getting ahead of myself here? It's, yeah, I'm, I'm going to try to get to that. Yeah, I'll, I, I could not um, control myself in a relationship um, still don't have the trust in myself that I could. And the reason for that is uh, the regular codependency 
um, seeking like external needs um, to define my value. But the love addiction, um, I get so attached to a person and create such a fantasy that at that point I'm, I get out of control very early in the relationship and ignore the red flags. The reason why this type of like why your podcast has been a really good tool for me in my love addiction is because um, it's made me when you start to see someone for who they are, which is um, breaking down the fantasy that is how you enter that painful withdrawal and learning about narcissism and the red flags that are so common. Like I'm sure so many people on this podcast feel like they're, we've all dated the same person because they're so similar. Um, It really helps keep me in reality. Um, It's not, it's kind of like hyper extended right now where I see narcissism everywhere and label everyone as a narcissist and so it's not something I want to plan on like staying in uh throughout my recovery and it's also still a deflection of the fact that I keep choosing these people but it is a very it's been a very helpful resource for me to be able to um stay out of my fantasy instead of um trying to take responsibility for that other person's behavior and trying to like absorb what they did and try to say like we were both in the wrong and there was no bad guy. Um, Being able to call out the abuse for what it is. And, and that's a very important step. I mean, that's a totally different starting point from, from the like, we're both uncompatible people starting point. Um, So yeah, it's been a, it's been a good tool for me in that way. And if I'm struggling with um, my fantasy, I, I come back to these podcasts and listen to, to not minimize what has happened to me and to help not gaslight that experience, my experience, because it's so similar to others. Um, So like with the last relationship that I was in um, is what led me to be in this recovery and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that and kind of like how it triggered my love addiction, um, in a way that I could see there was more to it than just like a bad breakup with an unhealthy individual and how I sought help. Um, you know, I, after, after being in recovery for my codependence and my eating disorder and being called out for wanting more out of my romantic relationships. Um, I started dating, uh, with more intention and being honest with myself. Um, but also the other person who I was seeing about, um, what I wanted out of a relationship instead of just pretending to be cool with whatever I started online dating. And this was like, early 2020 and um it was very difficult for me to do that because that was an intimate experience in itself for someone like me but um the biggest letdown of the whole thing was seeing how much more recovery I needed because I 
came at it from a more confident place. I had been in therapy for like seven years and I was like, I am ready to be a emotionally stable, intimate human being. And then I ended up picking just like a more sophisticated narcissistic type. And so that was part of my fantasy was that I was uh, ready instead of accepting that it's okay if I'm not totally ready and don't know everything. Um, but I, I kept ignoring red flags because I'd be like, well, you know, I, I know what I'm doing now. Um, even though I was very, felt very out of control. What were some of those red flags? Well, okay. I'll get into this relationship now. So I, I met someone online, um, and, uh, just for context, there was two kind of crazy coincidences at the beginning. And one was that he lives across the street from me. That's just bad right there. Oh God. It's been, yeah. Um, and that was like when we met online, he wasn't living across the street from me. So he, he had owned the house, but he was renting it out. So we didn't meet because of like location or anything, you know, through the app. So, and he, he moved in like two months in or whatever, but, and then the other one was that both his parents shortly after we met got cancer and uh, one of them actually died within three months. So it was um, something that I used to minimize his behavior and explain away the reality all the time was the fact that, you know, he was going through a crisis. Um, and, you know, I was really on the fence about getting involved, but at that point, I think my addiction had me. So yeah, when, when we met, um, we talked for, you know, it was COVID kind of the first stint of COVID. So we talked a lot more than, usual before meeting in person and I didn't feel like love bombed or mirrored I felt like he was very consistent and reliable and um I I mean I was getting love bombed it was just in a more covert way um in the form of him being very consistent I guess um but I uh I had already formed like sort of an attachment before I met him. And then I was, once I met him and felt the chemistry, uh, then I was just hooked. Um, so that's when we found out that we were neighbors is when, um, he came over and we just like sat on my lawn and hung out for an hour. And he was like, guess what? Like, that's my house right out your window. And, So, um, you know, he was legitimately an upgrade from my previous relationships. Like most of the men that I used to date typically had a substance addiction. Um, lots of them were very, like, very obviously narcissistic, very alpha male. Um, and they usually were like financially unstable, had unstable relationships, had friendships that I didn't care for. Um, 
And but I always lied to myself and said that it, that didn't matter because I wasn't going to have a relationship with substance. And this person, um, like financially, we seem to be on the same page intellectually, like our political beliefs. Um, so it, the starting point was better, which also kind of triggered my fantasy that that the rest was history and this could work because I found someone good for me on paper and we had chemistry and I had all these years of recovery behind me. Um, so unfortunately, like the reality was just that it was a good starting point, period. Um, that's it. And I, in my mind, kind of took it to this other place. But he kind of left me a little, dang- like just enough of a dangle to keep me interested, keep me hooked and, and stimulate my fantasy and think something was going to happen. And so his dad died um, and he had decided to go back to what he was doing before we met for three months, he said, which was working in the States. Uh, we live in Canada. And uh, so he said, you know, I lost my job because of COVID and they said I could come back to work for just three months. Like I'll be back at Christmas, but I just need to, you know, get it, my head straight and get things straightened out. And I said like, okay, um, that makes sense. And I told him, you know, I, I am not expecting us to stay together. Um, if that's not what you want, but if, if you do want to be with me, like that's what I want. And so I just want you to, think about that and and if that's not what you want I want you to stop talking to me and you know not yank my chain and uh so I said think about it because I I should have you know um held him accountable to that response but I wasn't ready to hear it and then I um gave him a day or two and he was already texting me a whole bunch and I made this assumption that he wanted to be with me despite you know temporarily leaving and he was going to come back to his house he was going to leave it empty for three months and so I was going with that and I was excited and we started you know talking a little more about our relationship and then um like a week after his dad died and like a couple days before he left um he made a mistake and he had sent me a screenshot of something And at the top of the screenshot, there was a Tinder notification. (laughs) So I was like, oh, God, you're still on dating apps? (laughs) Like, that is not what I expected was happening. And I called him out on it right away. But he just, I don't know, he just said a bunch of really confusing things back to me that made me confused and feel like it was my fault and and not really understand and feel like uh why didn't I define this relationship earlier even though I mean it was difficult for me to say like I need to know I'm your girlfriend amidst his crisis and um so I just said like damn if you don't want to be with me I wish you would have said something and like take a hike basically And then the next day he messaged me again and acted like nothing happened. And so I just said, like, have a good trip. I hope you feel better and overcome this uh, thing you're going through or something, whatever. And he never spoke to me 
um, again for like four months. And that's when I entered the withdrawal. Um, so first I started getting on dating apps myself and then, you know, it, it wasn't working. Like I wasn't, I was kind of acting out of haste and out of, uh, com- like a, I was comp- acting compulsively and, um, and then I was still, you know, not finding what I wanted and replacing him with someone else, uh, which my addiction wanted to do. So then I, uh, recreated a fantasy and kind of said like, you know, I, I am half responsible for this because I didn't define the relationship. Um, even though I tried, um, but minimize that. And, and I said, you know, when he comes back at Christmas, like we'll figure it out and, um, you know, it will be all good because he'll be past his crisis to an extent and, and be a better communicator magically. And so then I kind of lived on that high for about a month and a half, um, imagining all these scenarios, how our conversations would go, how I would win him back. This is all like fantasy. Um, and, and I had talked myself into like sending him a message, um, and, and whatever. Um, and then I, it was getting close to Christmas and I mean, I don't know if, um, most people who listen are Canadian. It seems like you've gone kind of international, but in Canada with COVID, you had at this time had to quarantine for two weeks if you came into the country. So I was like, I don't know if he's gonna be back. Like he probably would have had to, you know, I'm driving by his house every day. (laughs) It's still empty. And I'm like, I think he would have had to quarantine. And then I was like, oh my God, what if he isn't coming back? And then my, you know, I was like panicking because I was like, well, what do I do? The the thing I played out in my head cannot happen if he doesn't come back. Um, and so then I went back into withdrawal and I ended up um, luckily stumbling on this term and entering recovery, finding a, a therapist who specializes in love addiction and who understands like, um, that it's a stronger attachment than just a typical like codependency with someone or something. Um, and you know, he had me break down my relationship with this person step-by-step and, uh, show me the reality of the relationship, which was that this guy was, um, keeping me on the hook for his own, um, needs being met, but, never intending to commit, maybe always intending to go back to work in the States and just kind of seeing what he could get away with. And so then it was a very dark, dark time of uh, withdrawal. And about, yeah, like four months after the relationship ended, um, he, the person I was seeing, um, sent me a little breadcrumb and followed me on Instagram. Um, he didn't apologize or send me anything meaningful. He just, you know, sent me a little follow on Instagram. And luckily I had already been in recovery. So I knew that that was 
you know, like a Hoover tactic and I didn't follow him back. Um, but I still was, um, you know, checking up on him. Eventually, once I was ready, I ended up having to block him. And that was, uh, like, block his number, block him off social media. And I even stopped. I even found a different way to drive so that I wasn't naturally driving by his house every day because it was on my way out. Um, So I stopped driving by his house. And that's when I got very sober in my withdrawal and went through a very, very, very painful time. Um, Withdrawal makes you feel like you're going to die. Like you go to bed, not thinking you're going to wake up, like your heart will just stop. Um, You know, which is apparently something that's experienced in infancy, even with little babies when, um, their parents don't come to them when they're crying and and that type of thing. So it's a very childish uh, state of being that gets triggered in this type of relationship. Um, And so, yeah, like part of um, love addiction recovery is, is uh, maintaining that withdrawal and avoiding going back to the relationship or back to the fantasy or back to the obsessions and then the the part we're working on now is kind of um, breaking down the history, the autopsy, uh, why this happened, um, and and what I can do about it. And one of the things that was kind of um, new to me, and the concept is still new. I'm going to do my best to articulate it the best I know, um, but it's the it's, it's called toxic shame or carried shame. And so it's something that people who are codependent, um, but also love addicts tend to do is absorb the shame of other people. And so narcissists, um, they always behave very shamelessly. And, um, when you call them out on, on doing on their shameful behavior, which is, which is rightfully um, shameful, they will, you know, gaslight you and turn it on you and you in turn end up absorbing that, their, their shame instead of your own. Um, so there's, there's healthy shame, which is your own shame when you screw up and you have to admit you made a mistake and, and toxic or carried shame is when you absorb it from other people. And that really does a, does a number to a person um, over time and kind of leads you to continue to do that in a way where it's very automatic. So um, in uh, learning about toxic shame, you are basically um, figuring out what's what's yours and what's somebody else's and you become aware of what you've been internalizing um, which, you know, comes from your parents. Like my, uh, therapist believes that both my parents, um, carry a lot of narcissistic traits, but particularly my dad, he thinks would teeter kind of the personality disorder. Um, my dad is someone that we could never like cross. Um, and when he makes a mistake, you know, he, he doesn't admit it and he blames 
and he gets aggressive, um, which makes the child internalize that shame and live in that constant shameful state. And love addiction for both love avoidance and love addicts um, numbs you from feeling that shame. And that's what you feel a lot once you're in withdrawal. Uh, yeah, and the other thing that has been really important for me in, in my recovery is uh, community. It's a really lonely addiction. I think all addiction and recovery from addiction is a very lonely um, place to be, but particularly love addiction is not, I don't think it's like a official term. And I think it's very, very, very common. Um, so part of why I want to tell my story is to see if it, you know, um, gives anybody any light bulbs the way that it did for me, um, so that I could take control of, of this situation and, and, um, ultimately not put myself um, in this place where I get into these dysfunctional relationships. And community is a really big part of that because um, you meet so many people with so many stories who have such similar tendencies than to you. Um, I have one friend who uh, we talk every single day and we're very transparent about and try to both be very honest about, um, about, you know, like where our thoughts are going each day with our fantasy. And it's embarrassing because there's a lot of shame around having it. Um, but it's very, very helpful to even just have one person to consistently check in with. And, and so much of the time, like her story is so much different than mine, but we have so much common ground. Um, and, and then the other thing is going to the meetings, which, um, is sometimes helpful. It's, I usually just use them more when she's less available or, or I need, um, to hear about, uh, I go to meetings that are, um, tailored to love anorexics, which is kind of like where I define my avoidance part of me that doesn't get into a relationship and avoids them instead of um like the typical love addict um in the most typical form is somebody who is like goes from one relationship to another relationship to another relationship whereas I kind of play them out more in my head but I don't feel safe enough to enter them um so it's helpful to hear other people like that as well um but that's been a really important piece I I have an intimacy with my friend that I've never had with another person. And like, I, I can't speak for her, but like I've said things out loud that I've never said to her because it's safe to say them. And, and, and the, most of the time, you know, she's had the same ones and that is really helpful in keeping me in my reality and, and yeah, feeling loved and connected to another person throughout a very lonely time. So, yeah, that's basically my story. I, I'm still kind of in the, in the withdrawal period, um, doing the work I, and, and hoping that, um, when I get to the point of feeling safe enough to enter another romantic relationship, I can spot those, um, red flags earlier, um, whether they're presented overtly or covertly, 
um, and be able to, you know, uh, get out of that before my attachment um, sets in and my fantasy kind of starts, if that makes sense. So before we end off the show today, do you have any words of wisdom or advice for everyone listening? <laughs> um, the biggest thing uh, about recovery, and I've probably repeated this too many times tonight, but um, is to always be committed to staying in your reality. Um, so even if that reality is cringy for you, um, owning it and you can address why you have that cringy reality later, but trying to always be honest with yourself about that is very important. Um, that will help you, uh, to be able to get to the next step of recovering, um, is that honesty and, and to honor your instincts, you know, like a lot of the times when I would remember my relationship with this person, it was with rose-colored goggles. But I actually, um, I've kept a journal my whole life, like since I was six. And so I was able to read back on um, the reality of the relationship according to myself when I was in it and how insecure I felt and abandoned and unheard I felt even though I had a rose-colored um, version of it in my head, when I read it, I was like, oh, it never really was um, what I thought. And so um, I always had the instincts to know that, but I ultimately ignored them in the end. And so I think that it's really important for us as evolving and maturing humans to really trust what's been built into us all along that's going to help us survive and thrive. Well, Eunice, I really want to thank you for being here with us today, for sharing all of your knowledge, your experience. This isn't something that's easy to talk about and let it all hang out there. And you did for all of us to see to help a lot of people. I know you're going to help a lot of people who listen to the show today. And just a really big uh, thank you for being here and you know drilling down on the subject of love addiction from the perspective of someone who's in recovery and, and going through it. So really big, big, big thank you. And if you want to be a guest on our Survivor Story shows, please do visit our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. Please read all the instructions and either fill out our Guest Form or email us at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. Also at our website, we have our very own support group at the top of the page. Press, press on the support group button. It takes you to our very own safe social network. There we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We have our forum boards for you to ask questions on, get support on, and we're all there to answer it for you. We have episodes that never made it to air and ad-free episodes as well. So please do join our support group. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at domesticshelters.org where they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you're going through. They have phone numbers and emails of 
every domestic violence agency in shelter. So visit domesticshelters.org today. And that is it for today's today's show. So from myself and Eunice, we hope you have a good night.